0: Chapter Nineteen of Volume Two of Eleanor's Victory by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eleanor Howard, Greencastle, Indiana. Another Recognition. Lancelot Darrell came to Tolldale Priory upon the day after Richard's visit to Windsor, and it was easy for Eleanor assisted by her knowledge of what had transpired, to see the change in his manner. She spent an hour in the drawing-room that morning for the purpose of seeing this change, and thereby finding confirmation of that which Richard Thornton had told her. But the alteration in the young man's manner must have been very obvious, for even Laura, who was not particularly observant of any shades of feeling that did not make themselves manifest by the outward expression of word or gesture, perceived that there was something amiss with her lover. And drove Lancelot Darrell well nigh mad with her childish questionings and lamentations. Why was he so quiet? Why was he so much paler than usual? Why did he sigh sometimes? Why did he laugh in that strange way? Oh no, not in his usual way. It was no use saying that it was so. Had he a headache? Had he been sitting up late at night? Had he been drinking horrid wine that had disagreed with him? had he been a naughty naughty cruel false treacherous boy and had he been to some party that he hadn't told his poor laura about drinking champagne and flirting with girls and dancing and all that or had he been working too much at his new picture with such questions as these did the young lady harass and torment her lover throughout that uncomfortable february morning until at last mr darrell turned upon her in a rage declaring that his head was nearly split asunder and plainly telling her to hold her tongue. Indeed, Mr. Lancelot Darrell made very little effort to disguise his feelings, but sat over the fire in a low easy chair, with his elbows resting on his knees, and his handsome dark eyes bent moodily upon the blaze. He roused himself now and then from a fit of gloomy thought to snatch up the polished steel poker, and plunge it savagely amongst the coals, as if it was some relief to him to punish even them. Another man might have feared the inferences which spectators might draw from his conduct, but the principle upon which Lancelot Darrell's life had been based involved an utter contempt for almost every living creature except himself, and he apprehended no danger from the watchfulness of the inferior beings about him. Laura Mason, sitting on a low ottoman at his feet, and employed in working a pair of embroidered slippers, the third pair she had begun for the use of her future lord and master, Thought him more like the Corsair to day than ever, but thought at the same time that some periods of Medora's existence must have been rather dreary. No doubt it was Conrad's habit to sit and stare at the coals, and to poke the fire savagely when things went amiss with him, when his favourite bark was scuttled by a mutinous crew, or his cargo confiscated by the minions of the law. Lancelot Darrell was engaged to dine at the Priory upon this sixteenth of February. Mr Monckton had invited him in order that some matters connected with Laura's fortune might be discussed. "'It is time we should fully understand each other, Darrell,' the lawyer said, "'so I shall expect you to give me a couple of hours in my study this evening after dinner, if you've no objection.' Of course Mr. Darrell had no objection, but he had an almost spiteful manner that day in his intercourse with poor Laura, who was bewildered by the change in him. You think it's strange that I should dislike all this ceremony about settlements and allowance? Yes, Laura, that's a pleasant word, isn't it? Your guardian honoured me by telling me that he should make us a handsome allowance for the first few years of our married life. You think I ought to take kindly to this sort of thing, I dare say, and drop quietly into my position of genteel pauperism, dependent upon my pencil or my wife, for the dinner I eat and the coat I wear? No, Laura, Cried the young man passionately. I don't take kindly to it. I can't stand it. The thought of my position enrages me against myself, against you, against everybody and everything in the world. Lancelot Darrell talked thus to his betrothed while Richard and Eleanor were both in the room. The scene painter, sitting in a window, making furtive sketches with a fat little stump of lead pencil upon the backs of divers letters. Mrs. Monkton, standing at another window, looking out at the leafless trees, the black flowerless garden-beds, the raindrops hanging on the dingy firs and evergreens. Mr. Darrell knew that he was overheard, but he had no wish that it should be otherwise. He did not care to keep his grievances a secret. The egotism of his nature exhibited itself in this. He gave himself the airs of a victim, and made a show of despising the benefits he was about to accept from his confiding betrothed he in a manner proclaimed himself injured by the existence of his future wife's fortune and he forced her to apologise to him for the prosperity which she was about to bestow upon him as if it was being a pauper to take my money cried mrs mason with great tenderness albeit in rather obscure english as if i grudged you the horrid money lancelot why i don't even know how much i'm to have it may be fifty pounds a year "'That's what I've had to buy my dresses and things since I was fifteen. "'Or it may be fifty thousand. "'I don't want to know how much it is. "'If it is fifty thousand a year, you're welcome to it, Lancelot Darling.' "'Lancelot Darling shrugged his shoulders with a peevish gesture "'which exhibited him as a rather discontented darling. "'You talk like a baby, Laura,' he said contemptuously. "'I suppose the handsome allowance Mr. Monckton promises will be about two or three hundred a year or so, something that I am to eke out by my industry. Heaven knows he has preached to me enough about the necessity of being industrious. One would think that an artist was a bricklayer or a stonemason to hear him talk.' Eleanor turned away from the window as Lancelot Darrell said this. She could not suffer her husband to be undefended while she was by. "'I have no doubt whatever Mr. Monkton said was right, Mr. Darrell,' she exclaimed, lifting her head proudly, as if in defiance of any voice that should gainsay her husband's merits. "'No doubt, Mrs. Monckton, but there's a certain sledgehammer-like way of propounding that which is right that isn't always pleasant. I don't want to be reminded that an artist's calling is a trade, and that when the graces bless me with a happy thought I must work like a slave until I've hammered it out upon canvas.' and sent it into the market for sale some people think the graces are propitiated by hard labor richard thornton said quietly without raising his eyes from his rapid pencil and that the happiest thoughts are apt to come when a man has his brush in his hand rather than when he's lying on a sofa reading french novels though i have known artists who preferred that method of waiting for inspiration for my own part i believe in the inspiration that grows out of patient labor yes mr darrell answered with an air of lazy indifference, an air which plainly expressed that he disdained to discuss art topics with a scene painter. I dare say you find it answer in your line. You must splash over a good deal of canvas before you can produce a transformation scene, I suppose. Peter Paul Rubens got over a good deal of canvas, said Richard, and Raphael Sanzio d'Urbino did something in that way, if we may judge by the cartoons and a few other trifles. Oh, of course. There were giants in those days i don't aspire to rival any such patagonians i don't see why people should be compelled to walk through a picture gallery a mile long before they can pronounce an opinion upon a painter's merits i should be very well contented if my chance with posterity rested upon half a dozen pictures no bigger than millet's huguenots and as good and i'm sure you could do dozens and dozens as good as that cried laura why, it's only a lady tying a scarf round her lover's arm, and a lot of green leaves. Of course it's very pretty, you know, and one feels very much for her, poor thing, and one's afraid that he'll let those cruel Catholics kill him, and that she'll die broken-hearted. But you could paint lots of pictures like that, Lancelot, if you chose. The young man did not condescend to notice his affianced wife's art criticism. He relapsed into gloomy silence, and once more betook himself to that savage kind of consolation afforded by a sturdy exercise of the poker. But Lancelot, pleaded Miss Mason presently, I'm sure you needn't be unhappy about my having money, and your being poor. There's Mr. de Crispigny's fortune, you know. He can't be shameful and wicked enough to leave it to any one but you. My guardian said only the other day that he thought it would be left to you. Oh, ah, uh, to be sure, muttered Mr. Darrell moodily, there's that chance, of course. He couldn't leave woodlands to those two old maids you know, Lancelot, could he? To the surprise of the two listeners, Richard Thornton and Eleanor, the young man burst into a harsh, disdainful laugh. My respected maiden aunts! he exclaimed. Poor devils! They've had a nice time of it. Until this moment Richard and Eleanor had most firmly believed that the will which disinherited Lancelot Darrell bequeathed the woodland's fortune to the two maiden sisters, Lavinia and Sarah de Crespigny, but the young man's disdainful laugh, and the contemptuous yet half-pitying tone in which he spoke of the two sisters, plainly revealed that if he knew the secret of the disposal of Maurice de Crespigny's fortune, and knew that it was not left to himself, he knew also that equal disappointment and mortification awaited his aunts. He had been in the habit of speaking of them with a savage though suppressed animosity. Today his tone was utterly changed. He had a malicious pleasure, no doubt, in thinking of the disappointment in store for them, and he could afford now to feel a kind of disdainful compassion for all their wasted labours, their useless patience. But to whom, then, could the fortune be left? Eleanor and Richard looked at each other in amazement. It might have been supposed that the old man had left his wealth to Eleanor herself, influenced by the caprice that had induced him to attach himself to her because of her likeness to his dead friend. But this could not be, for the invalid had distinctly declared that he should leave nothing but George Vane's miniature to his new favourite, and Maurice de Crespigny was not a man to say one thing and mean another. He had spoken of a duty to be fulfilled. A duty which he was determined to perform. Yet to whom could he possibly owe any duty except to his kindred? Had he any other relations, except his three nieces and Lancelot Darrell? He might have other claims upon him, he might have some poor and modest kindred who had kept aloof from him, and refrained from paying court to him, and whose forbearance he might choose to reward in an unlooked-for, unthought-of manner. And again he might have bequeathed his money to some charitable institution or entrust for some new scheme of philanthropy. Such a course would scarcely be strange in a lonely old man, who in his nearest relations might only recognize eager, expectant harpies keeping anxious watch for the welcome hour of his death. Eleanor Monkton did not trouble herself much about this question. She believed from Lancelot Darrell's manner that Richard Thornton had drawn the right inference from the meeting of the young man and the lawyer's clerk. She believed implicitly that Lancelot Darrell's name was omitted from his great-uncle's last will, and that he knew it. This belief inspired her with a new feeling. She could afford to be patient now. If Maurice de Crespigny should die suddenly, he would not die leaving his wealth to enrich the traitor who had cheated a helpless old man. Her only thought now must be to prevent Laura's marriage, and for this she must look to her husband, Gilbert Moncton. He will never let the girl whose destiny has been confided to him marry a bad man, she thought. I have only to tell him the story of my father's death, and to prove to him Lancelot Darrell's guilt. The dinner went off very quietly. Mr. Monckton was reserved and silent, as it had lately become his habit to be. Lancelot Darrell had still the gloomy, discontented air that had made him a very unpleasant companion throughout that day. The young man was not a hypocrite and had no power of concealing his feelings. He could tell any number of lies that might be necessary for his own convenience or safety, but he was not a hypocrite. Hypocrisy involves a great deal of trouble on the part of those who practice it, and is, moreover, the vice of a man who sets no little value upon the opinion of his fellow-creatures. Mr. Darrell was of a listless and lazy temperament, and nourished an utter abhorrence of all work, either physical or mental. On the other hand he had so good an opinion of himself as to be tolerably indifferent to the opinions of others if he had been accused of a crime he would have denied having committed it for his own sake but he never troubled himself to consider what other people might think of him so long as their opinion had no power to affect his personal comfort or safety the cloth had been removed for old fashions held their ground at Toldale Priory, where a dinner à la russe would have been looked upon as an absurd institution, more like a child's feast of fruit and flowers, cake and sugar plums, than a substantial meal intended for sensible people. The cloth had been removed, and that dreary ceremonial—a good old English dessert—was in progress when a servant brought Lancelot Darrell a card upon a savour, and presented it to him solemnly amid the silence of the company. The young man was sitting next to Eleanor Monckton, and she saw that the card was of a highly glazed and slippery nature, and of an abnormal size, between the ordinary sizes of a gentleman's and a lady's card. The blood rushed to Lancelot Darrell's forehead as he read the name upon the card, and Eleanor saw his underlip contract with a sudden movement expressive of intense vexation. "'How did this—this this gentleman come here?' he asked, turning to the servant. The gentleman was driven over from Hazelwood, sir. Hearing you were dining here, he came on to see you, he says. Is he to be shown into the drawing-room? Yes. No. I'll come out and see him. Will you excuse me, Mr. Monckton? This is an old acquaintance of mine, rather a pertinacious acquaintance, as you may perceive by his manner of following me up to-night. Mr. Darrell rose, pushed aside his chair, and went out of the dining-room, followed by the servant. The hall was brilliantly lighted. And in the few moments during which the servant slowly followed lancelot darrell Eleanor had an opportunity of seeing the stranger who had come to the priory he was standing under the light of the large gas-lamp shaking the raindrops from his hat and with his face turned towards the dining-room door he was short and stout smartly dressed and foppish looking even in his travelling costume and he was no other than the talkative frenchman who had persuaded george vane to leave his daughter alone upon the boulevard on the night of August eleventh, eighteen fifty three. End of chapter nineteen of volume two.